Good morning. My name is Lisa Smalley, and I'm happy to share our scripture reading this morning. I'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 14. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the, great, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Sylvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet each other with a kiss of love. Peace be to you, all who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word we do ask that you would speak to our hearts as we see these final charges and calls from Peter. May we feel them deeply and be moved by this command to be on alert, to see with new eyes the world around us and not be intoxicated by it. Lord, may you work your word in our hearts for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been here at ABC over the last month, you've probably noticed a pattern forming. This pattern. Peter writes a passage about suffering, obliging me on Sunday to preach about suffering. And in the following week, I have the joy of finding out if I really believed what I preached on Sunday. And then, of course, I get to report back to you once I've recovered. Meanwhile, Jared steps in on the other Sundays and preaches all the good passages, (laughs) the ones that I was really looking forward to preaching myself. Uh, This somewhat comical pattern began back when I preached chapter 4, verse 1, which says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. A day after preaching that passage, uh, a pain started in my appendix area, which resulted in an emergency operation the next day. And I won't retell that story because I told it to you last time when I preached chapter 4, verse 12 which says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. The day after preaching that passage, COVID started going through my family and got all of us before the week was out. Uh, Even Todd, our dog, needed medical attention that week. And it was like everything fell at once, almost comically. Now, I want to say 
that I handled it all well, with good humor, with good grace, and that to the degree I suffered, I kept on rejoicing. I want to say that, but sadly, it was not always the case. There were a lot more moments of failing, of repenting, of seeking forgiveness this second time round. I already knew this about myself, but I had it confirmed again over the last two weeks. To me, this seems crazy, but I'll confess it. I handle severe pain much better than I handle minor discomfort. I'm quicker to trust God with acute suffering than I am with a sore throat. I'm quicker to cling to joy being cut open than I am being congested. I don't know if you're like that. I don't know why that is. I don't fully understand why, but I've got some guesses as to why that is. Maybe it's because acute suffering is like a megaphone blaring out my need for God. I hear it when the pain is acute, whereas a low-grade fever tends to dull all my desires instead of focusing them. You might be wired differently, but I find that it's easier to trust God when my car is written off as a total loss than it is when my car keys are totally lost and I'm late for that meeting. I, it seems totally upside down to me. It should be easier to trust God in the small things than in the big things. It should be easier to keep on rejoicing in the minor inconveniences than in the major bouts with suffering. But I find the opposite is true in me. My emotional response is quicker to find joy and my heart is quicker to trust God in times of acute suffering than in times of minor suffering and inconvenience. It may be that you're wired differently than me, but I imagine that many of us share this same paradoxical experience. We respond better to severe hardship than we do to minor ones. That said, would we rather face severe pain or minor pain? Minor, right? I'd rather face minor pain. I'd much rather have COVID again than another surgery. But which did more? For my faith. Which did more for my peace and joy and resting in Jesus? I'll tell you, church, it was the harder thing. It was the greater suffering, not the lesser. Given the choice, would I choose the harder thing? No. Given the choice, would you choose the harder thing? The loss of a job? The relational betrayal? Cancer? Most likely not. But would God do more in our hearts through these very hard things than through many minor inconveniences? Probably so. I didn't do particularly well this past week with the lighter thing of COVID compared to the major thing of appendicitis from the week before. But guess what? I get another chance. Because as things fall, today is the third straight message on suffering. 
we are hearing from First Peter. I get another chance. Who knows? Who knows what this week might bring? Flash flood? Falling off a ladder? Coyote attack? Who knows what this next week might bring? Uh, and if you can't get a hold of me this next week, just go ahead and start calling the hospitals, seeing if I'm there. I told Ella I was preaching on suffering again this Sunday, and she said, well, I guess I'm not making any plans for next week. <laughs> Thankfully, our passage today isn't all about suffering. Suffering is definitely present here, but it's only part of the message as the Apostle Paul, sorry, Peter, the Apostle Peter gives five final calls to the church. And that's the main focus today. Five final commands from 1 Peter. You see the first of those commands in verse 8. Verse 8 says, be sober, be of sober spirit, be sober-minded. If you're taking notes, here's the first thing I want you to see. First of Peter's final five commands. The first is this. Number one, be sober in an intoxicated age. Be sober in an intoxicated age. We live in an intoxicated age. People are not just drunk with wine, or at least not mostly. There are other things that are far more intoxicating than alcohol. Things like ideology. Ideology. People are intoxicated with political ideology. Drinking whatever Kool-Aid their favorite politician is serving today. People are intoxicated with gender ideology. Ideologies that distort their view of the world and themselves. People are intoxicated with class and racial narratives that victimize or else elevate the group with which they most closely identify. People are intoxicated with climate anxieties, anxieties that destroy their hope for the future and a life of purpose in the present. People are intoxicated with pornography and its presentation of a distorted view of sex and sexuality. People are intoxicated with social media as its influencers bombard us with curated presentations of themselves. People are intoxicated with around-the-clock network news, burdening us with the world's every disaster and making us drunk with outrage. Now, I personally find the appeal of some of those things very intoxicating, particularly the lure of instant news. We haven't had live TV in our house for the past 10 years, partially because I'm a cheapskate, but also partially because I'd be tempted just to leave the news on all the time. And I know the effect that would have on me. It would be like alcohol poisoning for my soul. And yet, this is where many people live. These are the things that we consume and that drive us. We live in an intoxicated age where people are driving their lives under the influence of network news 
of social media, influencers, of harmful ideologies that color everything that they see. By contrast to the intoxicated world, the church of Jesus Christ is to be sober. Sober. If we're to be intoxicated by anything, it ought to be living for the glory of God. That should intoxicate us. If we're to be intoxicated by anything, it ought to be a vision of Jesus and the world he is going to make. Christ is the only thing we should be intoxicated by. In all other things, we, church, ought to practice sobriety. Part of the attractive power of Christ's kingdom today comes from Christians being sober-minded. Sober-minded. When the world gets stirred up and intoxicated, but then looks over at the church and sees cooler heads and warmer hearts prevailing, it's attractive. Or at least they see it's different. For our part, we should be quick to point people to the source of the difference. We can have cooler heads and warmer hearts because we follow a Savior who is patient with sinners, who is slow to anger, and who is abounding in loving kindness. We're not tossed about by every current event, every outrage around the globe, every new ideology, because the one we follow isn't shaken by any of these things. Following Jesus should spare us from drinking the Kool-Aid of our times. Or at least it should gradually wean us off of it. In a time when people become drunk on one ideology after another, or one cause after another, let's show the world a better way. Be sober-minded, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Why? Because that's the way we reflect to the world that we belong to another kingdom, to a better kingdom. There's a second call in verse 8. Look again at verse 8. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Be on the alert. Here's the second of Peter's final points. Number two, be alert to spiritual pitfalls. Be alert to spiritual pitfalls. Back in 2020, during the early days of the pandemic, Boris Johnson was the UK's prime minister. And for a while, news junkie that I, I, I could be, for a while I watched his daily briefing. Uh, I remember when the official government guidance of the British government changed. It switched from stay home, save lives, protect the NHS, to stay alert, save lives, protect the NHS. Those were the official taglines that were on the podium of every briefing the government gave. And some criticized this guidance of stay alert as being too vague. But I thought it was helpful. Why? Because constantly telling the public to stay alert gives the needed reminder that we don't live in normal times. A virus was out there in the streets. There was an invisible enemy out there, one that we carry around inside of us 
The times weren't normal. None of these things are new concepts for Christians, are they? We've long been told to be on alert. We've long been told be on alert against a more deadly infection, one that is universally lethal. We've long known that we carry around in our own bosom our own worst enemy, our indwelling sin nature. Where for some people it takes a shocking act of violence or vice or a pandemic to wake them up and put them on alert. As Christians, we've been on alert for the past 2,000 years. We've been on alert to the nature and prevalence of sin. We know the pitfalls. We know the dangers. And unlike the world, we know the only thing that can break sin's dominion. Jesus. The good news about Jesus conquering the human heart. That's the only thing. It's the only remedy. Long before the world was on high alert against an invisible virus, Christians were already on high alert against an invisible adversary. Verse 8. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Why do we need to hear the call to be on alert? Because when your enemy is invisible, it's easy to forget about him. When the war is invisible, it's easy to forget that there's even a battle going on at all. The Apostle Paul has to remind us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against the world forces of this darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. That's who the real fight is against. That hate-filled person, judgmental person in your life, who is intoxicated with some gospel-denying ideology, guess what? That person is not your real enemy. That person isn't your enemy. They may want to be your enemy. They may be actively trying to hurt you and damage your reputation. But in spite of all their spite, your would-be enemy is still a person, a person made in the image of God who deserves your love and your pity. Think about it. The politician you most dislike in the world. Your political enemy in that comment section online. Your nemesis at work. The bully on the playground. They all deserve your love and pity as those made in the image of God. Now, acting in love may look like disengaging from that argument you're having with them on Facebook or in the office or at the family reunion. Pity may look like not defending yourself or having to have the last word. Christians are to be sober-minded 
and on the alert, knowing that our real enemy and our real fight is a spiritual one. The world around you won't understand this. The world scoffs at this. The world openly scoffs at the idea of a devil, of an angelic enemy who prowls about like a lion. But it's precisely when we join the world in that, in scoffing, affirming our culture's materialism and abandoning our Christian beliefs, it's precisely then that the devil has found in us an easy target to devour. You've seen lions hunt on Discovery Channel? You've seen lions hunt wildebeest before? Have you seen that? Like a straying wildebeest, many have walked away from centuries of Christian truth for the promise of being more accepted by the modern world. Only to find out that there is a lion hiding in the bushes, waiting to devour those who abandon the herd. Abandoning the truth that would have shielded us, we are cornered and brought down and become a cautionary tale for others. Even if you can't see him in the bushes, the lion is real. The enemy is real. If we abandon the flock, we can expect to become the enemy's lunch. And what will our new friends in the world do for us then? Like sharks smelling blood in the water, the world often turns on those it embraced only moments before. But it is not to be this way with Christ's church. Look at verse 9. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Verse 9, but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Here's Peter's third of his final commands. The third of Peter's final commands is this. Join the real resistance. Join the real resistance. One of my unfulfilled goals while living in France was to learn all the words in French to the La Marseillaise, which is the French national anthem. Uh, I, you know this, that one of the most moving moments in all of film history was in Casablanca. You know what I'm talking about, where the Nazis are off to the side in the cafe playing their, their song, and it's Victor Lazlo who goes to the, to the cafe band and says, play the La Marseillaise, play it. And Rick nods at them, and they start playing. And everybody starts singing in defiance. It's such a moving scene. I wanted to be able to sing it myself. I wanted to learn in French because I, too, wanted to sing about the enemy's impure blood watering my fields. The lyrics of that song are pretty intense, if, if you know them. Uh, but the, tr- the tune really captures a sense of revolutionary zeal. Maybe you also feel this revolutionary zeal. Or like me, you want to feel it. You want to be part of the resistance. Well, guess what? You can be. You can be. 
you can be part of the real resistance, the ultimate resistance. Look at verse 9. But resist him, resist the devil, firm in your faith. Here is a resistance movement that is far greater than the French resistance to the Nazis. The Nazis only subjugated and killed the body. But here is an enemy that would see your soul destroyed. This is the ultimate fight and resistance. Resisting the devil is the ultimate act of resistance. But this resistance happens in moments that won't grab headlines or make it into the 24-hour news cycle. This resistance happens every day in a thousand small quiet moments when you forgive that insult instead of stewing over it. When you choose not to cut corners to get ahead at work. When you say no to porn when you feel its pull. When you share what Jesus is teaching you around the table with your family, with your roommates, when you care for someone in need, when you meet up with someone for coffee and prayer, in all these and in 10,000 other ways, the church is pushing back the darkness by resisting the prince of darkness. And we do it knowing this, verse 9. Resist him firm in the faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Pastor, give me one reason. What's one reason why I can resist and stand firm in my faith today? You can resist today because other Christians throughout time and throughout the world have resisted and stood firm in their day. You can resist today because they stood firm in their day. If they did it, you can do it too. One of my favorite books is an autobiography by John G. Patton. He was a missionary to the South Pacific. Patton had to stand firm in faith while daily having his life threatened on an island full of cannibals. Patton's personal faith was emboldened, he said, by his father's faith. Patton wrote this. He said, Though everything else in religion were by some unthinkable catastrophe to be swept out of memory or blotted from my understanding, my soul would wander back to those early scenes in childhood of my father in his prayer closet. And would hurl back all doubt with this victorious appeal. He walked with God. Why may not I? He walked with God. Why may not I? Church, the same victorious appeal comes to us from Christians who have gone before. They walked with God. Why may not I? They resisted Satan. Why may not I? They stood firm in their faith. Why may not I? They overcame their suffering with joy in Jesus. 
Why may not I? Know this. Your brothers and sisters throughout the world and throughout history, they have resisted the devil. Swam against the cultural currents of their times. Stood for truth when maligned and misunderstood by the world. Resist and stand firm in faith. Knowing that the same suffering has already been encountered and overcome by others. Even now, around the world, there are people overcoming suffering much worse than yours through faith in Jesus. Know that you are not alone. Our resistance is at its weakest when we feel like we're all alone. Remember Elijah? Elijah despaired and was at his weakest when he said to God that the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left and they seek my life to take it away. But Elijah wasn't alone, was he? God's response, you remember it? God said, I have kept for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even when it feels like the world is rushing to bow the knee to one false god or another, know that God is always, he is always keeping a people for himself. You are not alone. You are never alone. But even when you can't see all those standing firm around you, suffering alongside you, you can still do this. You can still Fix your eyes on Jesus, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, endured the shame, endured the suffering for you. Jesus is our real motivation to suffer well. And he says that all who would come after him must take up their cross, dying daily to self. Church, we will suffer. We will suffer in his service. But, verse 10, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Here's our fourth call from this passage. It's this. Take the long view of suffering. Take the long view. Of suffering. Ultimately, all suffering in this life is short for the Christian. It's short because life itself is short. The scripture says that life is like a vapor. You go out on a cold day and breathe outside, that vapor lasts maybe two seconds and it's gone. That's life. Our time of suffering, however long and intense, is actually incredibly short and minuscule when compared to the world and reward that is coming. So, take the long view of suffering. Take the long view of your suffering. Peter takes the long view here. It's short. It's short, and what's coming is forever. The Apostle Paul takes the long view when he says, this present momentary light affliction is producing for me an eternal weight of glory that's far beyond all comparison. Here's an encouragement to stand firm in faith. Here's an encouragement to take the long view of your suffering. Your suffering now is short-lived compared 
to the length of your comfort. The comfort that is coming. The damage to your reputation now is small compared to the good name you will inherit forever. The name calling of your Facebook friends isn't worthy to be compared to the well done that is coming from creation's king. The cancer that ravages your body for a time can't hold a candle to the crown that will rest on your head forever. Take the long view, church. See with the eyes of faith what awaits you on the other side of this little life of suffering. Every bit of suffering we endure through faith in Jesus will produce eternal, immortal glory. Every act of resistance to the enemy, including the unseen acts, maybe especially the unseen acts, your Father who sees what's done in secret promises to reward you. So verse 11, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Stand firm, church. This is Peter's final call. Stand firm. Look at verse 12. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Here's the fifth and final charge from the end of 1 Peter. Stand firm in the gospel of grace. Stand firm in the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace is like a rock on which we stand. The good news about Jesus is like a treasure, a great treasure. The great treasure that we guard at all costs while also freely give it away. Stand firm upon this rock. Stand firm in this treasure. All the other commands that we see here stand upon this one. If we don't stand firm in the gospel of God's grace, we won't stay sober in an intoxicating age. If we're not drunk on Jesus, if we're not under the influence of his reign, we will be under the influence of this world. If we don't stand firm in the gospel of grace, we won't stay on the alert for spiritual pitfalls. The enemy will devour us if we abandon the high ground of God's gospel if we stray from the herd of God's people. If we don't stand firm in the gospel, we won't resist the devil. He has no reason to flee from us if we come against him in our own strength. You're not strong enough to resist him on your own. It's the gospel, not your strength, that gives you the power to resist. If we don't stand firm in the gospel of grace, we won't be able to take the long view of our suffering. Suffering will always be a pain unless we take hold of the promise of redemption found in the gospel of grace. Peter says, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Stand firm in it, church. Stand firm 
in it, whatever this next week may bring. You may need to call me and remind me of that. Stand firm in it, whatever this next week may bring. Stand firm, whatever 2023 may bring, or any year hereafter. Let's stand firm in the gospel of grace. For, verse 10, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Father, we come to you this morning desiring that your word might take root in our hearts, that we would stand firm in this gospel, that we would take the long view of suffering, that we would be on alert against the devil, that we would be sober in an intoxicated age. Lord, all these things, write them upon our hearts. Uh, Lord, we are like sheep continually straying. Remind us, bring us back to the truth again and again and again, and strengthen our hands for the battle, Strengthen our legs for the journey. Give us eyes to see our suffering through the suffering of Christ. And to the extent we share in it, may we keep on rejoicing. Lord, we ask all these things for the glory of our King. In Jesus' name, amen.